Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Well, today we have a woman who truly needs no introduction, whose voice is or should be, especially if you're a cinephile, her own introduction, but I'm going to attempt to give her one anyway. A film writer I remember reading as far back as Cinematical and The Village Voice, as well as the author of Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom, and Howard Hughes' Hollywood, and books on George Lucas, Al Pacino, and Meryl Streep, Perina Longworth is the historian and podcaster behind the acclaimed, addictive, and fascinating show You Must Remember This, as well as the recent Love is a Crime with Vanity Fair. Here to tell us all about the new season of You Must Remember This and discuss a few great movies along the way, I am so honored to have you here, Karina. So how are you doing and how's fall treating you so far? Wow. Thank you for that great introduction. Um, I'm doing well, you know, it, here in Los Angeles, sometimes it feels like fall, sometimes it doesn't, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing well and I'm excited to talk about uh, the new podcast season and uh, some of the movies related to it. Of course. I listened to the first episode today. We're talking about the new Sammy and Dino season and I loved it. Oh, and I just, you. yes, it is right up my alley. I was so excited. <laughs> so I just can't wait. Well, recently on Twitter and leading up to the big reveal of the topic, you teased the new season as focusing on, among other things, changing ideas about masculinity and the man from World War II to Vietnam, parallels between mainstream capitalism and underground criminal economies, race in America in the 20th century, and more. It sounds so compelling, and it already is. It's a period that has always captured my imagination. One of my thesis ideas was actually about the McCarthy hearings, and I remember writing a huge paper on McCarthyism, masculinity, and the 50s Western, especially as it pertained to one of the movies we're talking about today. So I'm very excited, and you're an expert on this uh, subject as well. You did that great season all about the blacklisting. So I'm very excited. What more can you tell us, though, about the new season, Sammy and Dino? Well, um, you know, I think like you, I'm always looking for excuses to talk about mid-century Hollywood. And specifically for me, I find myself more and more fascinated by the movies and the culture of the 1950s. And so um, like the uh, the last season of You Must Remember This was about Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. So it wasn't yes. really that much about movies. And then the season before that was about Polly Platt, which was about mostly the, se- the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And so I was really looking for some way that I could get back to kind of talking about the 50s. <laughs> um, and I had read the incredible book Dino by Nick Tosh's years ago and had always wondered if there was something, you know, more to say about Dean Martin. And then I kind of came up with the idea of, of talking about him in concert with Sammy Davis Jr. Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, I think people, if they think about the two of them together, they think of them as these bookends to Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack. But I was interested in this idea that like, I don't know if 
young people today have ever thought of the Rat Pack as being cool, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, for me, I'm in my early 40s. They had this kind of resurgence in the 90s when Vegas was making a comeback. And then there was movies like Swingers and Go oh, yeah. that were sort of set in, um, you know, using their music. And and uh, so for me, there was like a brief period where it seemed like you could kind of understand what was cool about the Rat Pack. Mm-hmm. Um, but nowadays, it's just like it feels so toxic in so many ways. And so... I wanted to kind of talk about what the Rat Pack were really like and like how that group came together and then who Sammy and Dean were as individual artists and as men. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful idea. I'm part Italian-American on my mom's side. We're from much further south than uh, (laughs) Dean Martin was. So Mm -hmm. I heard so many stories growing up from like my ancestors about all of the... um, you know, prejudice against the Italians. And so I grew up with this larger than life image of the Rat Pack and at my great uncle's bar, like he had all the posters everywhere, all the Bogart posters, all of these. So these were kind of these titans and I'm about the same age you are. And remember that resurgence of popularity, especially swingers also kind of the swing music. And remember Gap was doing something, suddenly the fifties were cool again, Mm -hmm. but it kind of did sort of fall by the wayside. So I was really excited to see you pick up that torch and run with it. And I can't wait to learn more. Well, yeah. And also I just, I feel like for a long time, that was the image of how you could stay cool as a middle-aged white guy. <laughs> exactly. You right? Emulate the Rat Pack. Um, and But it was sort of uniquely a thing for white guys, it felt, even though Sammy was part of it as well. And yes. so that was interesting to me as, you know, just trying to figure out like what was the racial dynamic then and then how it was sort of perceived later. Um, and then just also thinking about what constitutes cool. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, about 10 years ago, I um, I taught a grad school class and like everybody, every student in that class was really turned off by anything that seemed to be quote unquote, trying too hard. Okay. Um, And I feel like that's a, that's something that's pretty common amongst young people is that they're, you know, sort of allergic to pretentiousness, or at least it, it has been for a long time. And now I feel like maybe there's there's a new earnestness. (laughs) Like I can't imagine TikTok, for instance, being cool when I was growing up, but no. um, (laughs) So I'm just interested in how, how we define cool changes and, and how a kind of level of sincerity and a level of commitment relates to that. Yes. And I like that you are, you talk about the forgotten histories and the secret histories of sort of this iconography and, but what was really going on then? What was, in encompassing because I remember I gave my grandpa like a book on the Rat Pack. I want to say it was by Sean Levy, if memory serves. Yes. And I remember giving it to him all excitedly, like, you love these guys. This is great. And then after he read it, he kind of looked at me like, well, I didn't want to know that much about them because it suddenly took away this mystique that they had, like, you know, horrible or whatever. And so, and you can totally see, um, how that would get rid of that, you know, poster image, but it's always good to go back and look at what is cool. So exactly for the reasons that you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, recently I had on Jason Bailey, who wrote, who wrote the new book, Fun City Cinema, about the last 100 years of New York film history. And we got into a conversation about his research and writing process and how he approached that project. And before we go into Dean Martin, I would just love to ask you the same thing. How long does it take to complete a season of your series? Do you focus on one at a time? Or are you able to kind of multitask and work on, say, like the Polly Platt season at the same time you're starting to research the Gossip Girls one? How does that work? It really kind of varies from mm-hmm. season to season. And so I, I never, I get asked that question a lot. And I, oh, it's really hard. oh, no, don't worry about it. But I mean, it's really hard for me to answer it in a way that I think is satisfying to people because I don't have like a number of weeks or months. And, sure. and the process changes a little bit for each season. Um, for the Polly Platt season, you know, I started with this unpublished, unfinished memoir of hers. And then it was a question of like trying to figure out what were the holes in the memoir? What questions did I have? Who was still alive that I could talk to? Who would talk to me? So that's (laughs) that's a really different process than something like Gossip Girls where everybody involved with it has passed away. It's really kind of ancient history and there aren't even a lot of movies to watch. It's really more about, you know, trying to read newspaper columns and, and kind of trying to understand the the context of of newspaper publishing during these various decades that these women were working. Um, And so that is all pretty different than Sammy and Dino, which is there was a fair number of movies to watch, particularly for Dean Martin. There are fewer Sammy Davis Jr. movies. And so with Sammy, it becomes more about trying to understand what, how he was able to manifest his incredible talents in different mediums and um, and try to experience as much of that as possible. There are a lot of books to read. Um, yeah, and I, I can't imagine. Yeah. And because I did this kind of side project, this work for hire called Love is a Crime, um, yes. that, that project was, you know, I, I kind of signed on to it at the end of last summer thinking I would be done with it by early 2021 for various reasons, it just dragged on much longer than that. And so I kind of got to this point where I was having to work on that at the same time as working on Sammy and Dino, which is not the way I like to work. I really like to focus on one thing at a time, but I was just, I just ran out of time. (laughs) So I had to, I had to start working on Sammy and Dino while we were still putting together Love is a Crime. And, and so that's, that's really stressful for me because what I like to do is just like get really, really deep into one project and Same. learn everything I can about it and put everything I have into it and then walk away from it and never think about it again. Um, yes. So I wasn't really <laughs> able to to do that, at, you know, in the way that I'd like to. But, um, you know, now I'm finishing up Sammy and Dino. Like I've I've written all the episodes. There might be little touches that I, I make here and there as I go through the editing process. Um And we just started editing the episode. So I'll be finished, like completely finished with it in a few weeks. And I am already starting to think about my next season, but I'm nowhere close to really being able to define it. I just have some ideas. Okay. Yeah, that was my next question. Because I'm the exact same way. I like to completely lose myself in the research, get really immersed in it and focus on one thing at a time. But when I was uh, reading or I should say rereading some of these materials today, thinking about these movies with um, like Peter Bogdanovich. He wrote so many great books on uh, some of these figures. And when I was looking over the section with like Howard Hawks or uh, Dean Martin and the other book, 
um, who the hell's in it and who the devil made it. I was thinking about the Polly Platt season and I was wondering if you might have in the back of your mind, like a kernel of an idea, like, ah, it would be interesting to touch on this later. Do you have like a list of possible topics for the future or is it just kind of what is the ether at the moment? What is getting to you? I used to have a list list like that, um, but I exhausted it. (laughs) I've been doing the podcast for seven years. And so that's true. um, A long time. And, and, you know, some of those ideas were things where as the podcast evolved, you know, it wouldn't make sense to do them because they couldn't stretch over the course of a whole season. Um, So nowadays I think about things a little bit differently because I I do fewer episodes. You know, I'll usually only do one or two seasons a year. Um, and so I try to make each season kind of more powerful, I guess. Um, okay. And yeah. to sort of contain more. And so I have to think about ways in which things can kind of have a lot going on um, <laughs> all season. So um, there's two ideas that I'm sort of pursuing. I don't want to say exactly what oh, they are. Oh, no, of they're, course not. Yeah. Both ideas where I had thought about writing books about these things. Um, and uh, one of them... So I, I don't have a book agent anymore. I'm really not involved in book publishing at all because I, um, you know, put out this book about Howard Hughes and it did okay, but didn't do super great. And um, my agent was sort of pushing me to do something really commercial next. Oh. And um, I wanted to write a book about Polly Platt and he didn't think that was a great idea. And so he was very discouraging about that oh. and then was discouraging about a few other ideas I had. So I I broke off the relationship with that agent and I just haven't gotten a new one. And so I'm kind of at this point where I just feel like I don't really understand the book publishing world. And so any oh, ideas yeah. that I have had for books over the past few years, I'm sort of wondering if I can do them as podcasts instead. I understand. Yeah, that's got to be so discouraging. Well, I know your fans would love to read anything you put out and of course listen. So um in whatever way you choose to follow up, I'm sure we will love the end result for sure. Thank you. Well, for today, when figuring out what to discuss, you suggested Dean Martin's career, particularly the years 1958 to 1960, and some of the films he made during this period, including The Young Lions, Some Came Running, and Rio Bravo which seemed to be this interesting crossroads for Dean where he turned in some truly great dramatic performances. And it's sandwiched, of course, after his films with Jerry Lewis and before he began to sort of coast into the Rat Pack era of filmmaking and hangout movies or his golf years. It's (laughs) funny, he always... He's always been my favorite member of the Rat Pack, but he's also the one I know very little about. We'll get into the movies in a moment, but before we do that, what can you tell us about Dean in this era? What should we know? Well, you put it really well when you said that it's between the Jerry Lewis period and the Rat Pack period. Um, and after his partnership with Jerry Lewis broke up in the mid-50s, there there really was a period where Hollywood was not placing their bets on Dean. You know, they thought that Jerry was going to be the lasting star. Um, mm. And Dean really had to figure out how to have a career as a solo act. And so first he worked on his live act and he started to develop the kind of drunk persona, <laughs> his signature. Um, and then, you know, it was a question of, can he still be a movie star if he's not playing off of Jerry Lewis? 
And his first movie, which was called 10,000, or his first movie after the breakup with Jerry Lewis was called 10,000 Bedrooms, and it was a big flop. And so he was, yeah, (laughs) so he really was not in demand in Hollywood. And then um, this movie, The Young Lions, was going into production. It was based on a novel about World War II, and it was sort of 20th Century Fox's way of trying to have their own version of From Here to Eternity. Mm -hmm. Um, And they had cast Tony Randall in the part of um i forget the character's name but he basically is like michael Michael. he's like a new york man about town like (laughs) a broadway star i think and he keeps trying to find ways to get out of having to serve in the war um and so they cast tony randall in this part and they had also cast montgomery clift and marlon brando in the film and tony randall at that time had not made movies um he was you know a, a newcomer and so Montgomery Clift went to go see Tony Randall in a play he was doing, which was kind of a sex farce. And he came back and talked to the director, Edward Dimitrik, and said, like, anybody, cast anybody but this guy in this part. <laughs> um, and at the same time, Dean Martin's agent had been, you know, trying to get him into the movie. And so Dean Martin ended up getting the part. But it really was this thing where it was like nobody had expectations that he would even be able to do it, let alone do it well. Um, and it, you know, became this huge hit. It was really kind of a zeitgeisty movie during this time in the late fifties where it had been about a decade and a half, obviously since the end of world war two. And there was this kind of brief moment where Hollywood movies were sort of trying to reckon with like, did we do that in the best way possible? (laughs) And (laughs) are there, are there lasting psychological impacts? Um, And so, yeah, it was this big hit and it kind of showed Dean in a new light and it made him a hot star for a while. Um, And so it allowed him to stretch as an actor and stretch as a movie star and and appear in some real A-list material until he it seemed like he sort of got tired of it and he got tired of trying. Um, And, you know, there's you could. There's a few reasons why maybe that happened, which I talk about obviously quite a bit in the podcast season. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, 1960 is the year that they're making Ocean's Eleven, and so yes. that movie really is the beginning of the Rat Pack. Um, so yeah, I do think that this is an interesting era from about 58 to 60. Not only are the three movies you mentioned involved, but there's also the musical Bells Are Ringing, which I think is, it's actually probably one of my top 10 favorite films of all time. It's such a great one. Yeah, I think Dean Martin's really great in it, even though he apparently hated it. Um, <laughs> and there's also another movie that I discovered while I was doing this season, which is called Careers. And um, it's you would be interested in it. Have you seen it? I looked it up on YouTube and just watched it last week. Yeah, Careers yeah, so with Shirley to- McLean. yes. Shirley MacLaine, and it has this, you know, sort of blacklist McCarthy element to it as well. Um, You know, Dean plays like a, you know, somebody who is presented as a heel, as somebody who, you know, is a former communist in it. Um, And the movie is sort of like the point it seems to be making is that, well, you know, with people like that, you can hold your nose and work with them, but you can't trust them. Mm. Um, which is really just a really interesting thing for Dean to be playing at this point in his career, I think. Um, but again, that was some, that was like a risk he took that didn't, didn't work well commercially. Mm. And so he, I think he was not given very many incentives after a certain point to continue to make risks. 
Yeah, no, that's a really good observation. And as you said, chronologically, first up, we do have a crossfire in the Kane Mutiny director and member of the Hollywood 10, Edward Dimitrix, 1958 World War II epic, The Young Lions, based upon the novel by rich man, poor man author Erwin Shaw, The Young Lions chronicles the role that a German ski instructor turns Army Lieutenant, played by Marlon Brando, a Jewish Macy's department store clerk turned soldier, played by Montgomery Clift, and of course, Dean Martin's Broadway crooner, as Karina mentioned, who uses his connections to avoid combat duty, all play in the Second World War. It's a nearly three-hour engrossing work. Karina, I had completely missed this one. So I am so glad you mentioned this movie and career in your email because uh, The Young Lions in, in particular immediately pulled me in and I liked it very much. But what are your thoughts on this one? I too had never seen it before I started researching this season. Um, okay. And yeah, I was really blown away by it. Um, for me, what was a surprise based on what I had heard about the movie is that so little of it is actually a war film. And so mm-hmm. much of it is about sort of people kind of like twiddling their thumbs before they get into combat. <laughs> uh, you know, um, Montgomery Cliff's uh, storyline has a lot to do with him kind of fighting within his his unit, you know, being sort of for, like being the, I don't know what you'd call it, the scapegoat or yeah. like, the one who's sort of picked on in his group. And kind of trying to prove his manhood within that. And then of course, Dean's storyline has so much to do with trying to stay out of combat and this sort of self-preservation. And then when they finally all kind of come together in this concentration camp, um, I know. it's, I found it really moving mm-hmm. what ends up happening. I don't know if this is like a, a podcast where we talk about spoilers. Oh, you can. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so basically what ends up happening is that Marlon Brando has you know, is a Nazi, has been a Nazi soldier. Um, but he has some kind of, of recognition of his humanity when he encounters the, the concentration camp after many other things have happened as well. Um, but he throws away his weapon and, and he, it seems like he's sort of renouncing being a Nazi, but then Dean Martin and, um, Montgomery Clift come upon him and they see him only as a, as a crowd Nazi. And so they kill him. And, I found this so moving after the whole film, you know, that had preceded it because it really just felt like, you know, we talk a lot about like, why didn't anybody stop the concentration camps? You know, what, like, what were, what was everybody doing? And I think this movie speaks to some aspect of that, of people were so caught up in their daily dramas, their petty dramas, um, things that seemed like right in front of their faces in their own lives. Um, that by the time they were able to kind of put that stuff aside, it was too late. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what else I thought was so moving about the ending is it circled right back to the beginning. In the opening sequence, we see Marlon Brando as a ski instructor, and he's having just a nice evening with, I believe it was um, Barbara Rush is playing. Mm -hmm. Yes, Uh, the leading lady. And she has somebody back home we know or eventually learn that it's Dean Martin. And he said, well, you know, your young man mind or something. And she kind of laughs and says, like, I don't think it would occur to Michael to ask. And at the end of the movie, it is Michael who winds up killing 
the Marlon Brando character. So it's kind of this weird full circle moment of um, how they're linked by this one woman. Whereas, you know, Dean Martin and Montgomery Cliff's characters uh, meet like when they're enlisting um, or they're drafted, I should say, and how they come together then again in the war. So it was a really interesting way to get all three characters on the screen. I guess it was shot at different times. You know, in my romantic mind, I'm like, oh, three of our greatest actors, like they're <laughs> all right there. And then you learn, oh, no, the other side was shot later, mm-hmm. which is a little disappointing. But I also <laughs> thought what's interesting with this one, and then, of course, some came running, which we're going to get into next, is who lives or dies at the end is different from the novel. Mm -hmm. And why, I guess, at the end of The Young Lions, I haven't read it, but I guess the Noah character, which is Montgomery Clift, was supposed to be killed. Um, So I thought, no, it's good that they they let him live at the end of this. But I wanted to know your thoughts on that, just like in the end of um, Some Came Running, which we'll get into, a different character lives and dies. Yeah. I haven't read the novel, The Young Lions, so I don't really have thoughts about how that gotcha. played in the novel, but I have read the novel of Some Came Running, oh, so good. <laughs> I can speak uh, speak a lot to that, actually. Okay, perfect. Is there anything else you want to add on The Young Lions? Um, well, I just think that the character ends up being something that feels very important in Dean Martin's filmography. I mean, it I almost is kind of an archetype that he would come back to again and again of somebody who um, is partially apathetic and partially sort of finding something to care about. Yeah, it's kind of fitting for Dean Martin, who has this sort of reputation of half caring when he's um, in his work mode. Like he's he's there until he doesn't want to be. You had a great quote, and of course I'm going to miss it. Was it Shirley MacLaine? Like he's nice, but he doesn't want the nice to last or to go on too long, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yes, I know yeah. I probably butchered that, but yeah. So this is an interesting uh, tie-in with his real life persona as well. Yeah, and I mean that aspect of Dean Martin. I feel like I spend a lot of time trying to analyze and justify why I'm so attracted to him as a star. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is something about his, his sort of personal life that I really relate to in terms of exactly what Shirley MacLaine is saying, which is, you know, it can, maybe it seems, and maybe it seemed in, in Dean Martin's case, rude, or, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'm sure people got hurt when they felt cut off by him when he decided that nice had to stop going. (laughs) But I, I really respect and relate to the idea of setting boundaries, yes. especially as somebody who has any kind of public facing life, you know, you, you maintain something of yourself by holding back some of yourself. Yes. You need that privacy mm-hmm. and that downtime and the way to, you know, de-stress and decompress for sure. Well, next up, we have Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, along with really, in my eyes, the woman who steals the whole picture away from everyone, Shirley MacLaine, in Vincent Minnelli's 1958 film, Some Came Running, another film based upon a novel, this time from From Here to Eternity, National Book Award winner James Jones. As the film opens, Sinatra's cynical, aimless World War II Army veteran Dave Hirsch wakes up hungover on a bus in his Indiana hometown with no memory of how he got there 
or the good time gal played by McLean, who he'd impulsively invited to take the trip back with him from Chicago when he'd been intoxicated and in a fight the night before. A novelist with major issues, not just from the war, but also with regard to his wealthy, successful, and estranged older brother. Over the course of the movie, he falls in love with a school teacher with sexual intimacy issues, played by Martha Heyer, and also befriends a gambler in the form of Dean Martin. Before this classic film careens into its heartbreakingly tragic conclusion, which famously plays out against the backdrop of a carnival. More a showcase for Frank and Shirley than Dean. Still, he sparks in his scenes with Sinatra in this, their very first film together. Obviously, we could have done a whole episode on any one of these movies because there's a lot to say. (laughs) But what can you tell us about Some Came Running? This is another one of my favorite films of all time. um, And, you know, was another kind of incentive to to do a podcast season on Dean Martin. And um, as I was studying the film, Again, you know, in this context, and I, I read the novel, it came to really symbolize something for me about this whole era and and this thing that I mentioned earlier about reckoning with like what we actually did in World War II mm-hmm. and what is the life that we're building in the aftermath. And um, I think that stuff is present in the movie. It's much more present in the novel. Um, in the the novel of Some Came Running includes everything that's in the movie with the exception of the Shirley MacLaine character is slightly different in the book. Um, But it also just includes so much more. And one of the things that is a recurring theme in the novel is the, the Frank Sinatra character, Dave Hirsch kind of looking at the debauchery around him of, of, because, you know, and, and this is depicted in, in the movie as well. Like they're, kind of the only thing to do in this small town is go to the bar and drink. Yeah. And, and there's sort of, there's kind of, um, there's two like social strata. There are the country club people who go to the country club and drink. And then <laughs> there's everybody else who goes to the sort of local bar and plays pool and gambles. Oh, that's um, funny. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, but either way, this character in the book is looking around him and being like, I think this is what ancient Rome must have felt like right before the fall. Um, mm. And so it's just, it's really fascinating for me to kind of dig really deep into this era, which I think that we don't talk about that much, that we talk about the 1950s as this time when, you know, in this kind of Douglas Sirk way, consumerism was so valued and and there was kind of a, a false front to, the, to American society. Um, but we, I don't think we really talk about like the direct relationship that that had to PTSD. Um, mm-hmm. and to this kind of hangover of, of World War II. And um, doing this season and with Some Came Running as a, as a core film of it and, and the ideas in it as being key made me kind of understand how the Rat Pack in a way was, I mean, one way to phrase it, which I phrased it, this phrase that I've written um, is that the Rat Pack is sort of the hair of the dog to the hangover of World War II. It's like, you know, you're hungover and then you need another drink the next day. Um, And that's the Rat Pack is sort of um, a way of kind of, you know, an antidote to the the pain and the lingering confusion of that period. Um, And it, you know, the, the 60s that we think of in terms of hippies and counterculture and, and generation clash, um, 
that, you know, happens a few years later, the early 60s, when you have the Rat Pack as being kind of an embodiment of adult cool, it's really kind of the last gasp of middle-aged cool. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it it has had some lasting value for, um, you know, men, particularly, particularly white men who kind of are trying to prove that they still have it. Yes. No, absolutely. And yes, it's like the Rat Pack after World War II is kind of the chaser. Um, Mm -hmm. Everybody is looking for a sense of escape, but it doesn't last exactly what you were saying. And then what is it they're escaping or trying to escape? In this movie, he pointed it out and you uh, articulated it very beautifully with, you know, drinking and the bar or the country club. And everybody is sort of looking for a sense of just needing to escape their dull lives. There's even, of course, the backdrop of the carnival. But what is it? Is it the new 50s um, suburbia? Is it a question of what did we do over there and why? And I think there's a lot of stuff going on in this film. It might seem kind of a simple, straightforward tale of this man returns home and he doesn't fit. And there's a lot of angst. You know, I I think that was my first read of it when I was younger. Like, well, what's going on or why should we care about these guys? But then the more you place it in the context of history in World War II, you start to see it very differently. I also think it's an extraordinarily just beautiful film. You mentioned Cirque. And of course, this era, but this is also Minnelli. He was, I mean, he did do a movie I love from the uh, World War II, The Clock, which is, mm-hmm. you know, one of my favorites. But he also made those huge, um, big musicals that were very splashy and very colorful. But there's a color and also a sense of darkness to this. And I think it's just a hauntingly beautiful film. Cinemascope used very well. I remember in the personal journey through the movies with Martin Scorsese, him going on and on about the way that it was used. Um, and yeah, I think it's a wonderful movie. Do you remember your first memory of seeing this one? No, it, I've seen it so many times. I gotcha. I yeah, the first time was, um, you know, what during that period in the '90s that we were talking about when the Rat Pack mm-hmm. had to come back. That's when I discovered Frank Sinatra as an actor. Um, And not just somebody who was somebody, somebody who was a singer. Um, And so that's when I probably first watched this movie because I watched a bunch of his movies, just renting them at Blockbuster. (laughs) Um, But I I don't, I don't have a memory of, of specifically the first viewing. Yeah, no. And it's really good that you pointed out the nineties because while we were talking, I was trying to think what was my first memory of like Frank Sinatra as a girl. And it was probably like seeing, remember the movie with the Corys, License to Drive, where (laughs) there was like this cassette tape that I think was stuck in the car. And it was Strangers in the Night. And so it was kind of Frank's voice being used as a punchline. And then in the 90s, all of a sudden it was cool. And, you know, you wanted to like learn more exactly what you were pointing out of renting Frank's movies and seeing him in, you know, From Here to Eternity and realizing there was a talent there beyond just um, being old blue eyes and singing and same with Dean and Sammy and everyone. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think Frank Sinatra died in 1995. So I'm sure that that kind of brought, you know, a a reckoning sounds too dark. I know. uh, You know, uh, I don't know what the word is, but a a revival. Yeah. Resurgence. Or just a, a reconsideration of the fullness of his career and his work. And I also, when you were talking about 
the Corys. <laughs> I, I weirdly had this memory of the movie Clueless where um, Cher, you know, has a crush on oh, yes. a guy who turns out to be gay, but he has this whole vibe of what, like wearing tight t-shirts and, and driving a classic car and listening yes. to <laughs> jazz. And, uh, you know, that, that seems like, I mean, when I think mean, maybe every teenager goes through this, but it seemed like, especially in the nineties, like when I was a teenager, there was this feeling of you can try on different identities and, mm-hmm. and specifically identities that you borrow from the past. And so that seemed like a valid thing for a teenage boy to be sort of trying on. Yeah. And there's even that line. I think Dan Hedaya has a comment like, you know, the death of Sammy Davis Jr. didn't leave an opening in the rat bath or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you pointing out um, after Frank's passing, suddenly people were looking back on that. I think also, uh, I think it was Capital re-released it was like a double cd album because i remember we had that um album of of frank because i remember that cover clear as day so yeah there was suddenly this new influx influx of wanting to look back and who were these guys yes and exactly what you're saying trying on different identities recently i did an episode where um sabina stent and i talked about like generational soundtrack movies And in the 90s, we were looking back on like American Graffiti and also Dazed and Confused and how in that era we were looking at the 70s, but also it turns out the 50s, just a past, a fascination with the past. Yes. And obviously the 80s was looking back at the 50s quite a bit too with things like Back to the Future. and Oh yeah, great point. When I was a kid in the 80s, I was super into the 50s and there was a, a chain of restaurants here in LA where I grew up called Cafe 50s which was mm. a perfect replica of a 50s diner where you'd go and you'd sit at, at a booth and there was a little jukebox there that only played like, you know, the platters. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and I, you know, begged for a poodle skirt for Christmas. So yes, we had 50s grill in the Minneapolis <laughs> area. So exact same thing for sure. But you mentioned that you had read the book, Some Came Running. Isn't it like 1200 pages or something like that? Yeah, it's, it's really long. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think I want I don't know if I'm going to get this exactly right but my understanding is that it was originally 1600 pages long wow um, and it was released they they bought the rights to make the movie before the book was released okay and then the book was released I think maybe concurrent to the movie or maybe the book right before the movie and the book didn't sell very well I think partially because it was so long but it's also very despairing um oh, and, yeah. you know we can talk about we can talk about the ending of the movie, sure. but the ending of the movie, it at least sort of holds out a little bit of hope that the Frank Sinatra character might, might get his life together and yeah. might have another chance with this school teacher character. And the book doesn't have that. And um, the book, every time somebody does make a decision in the book about that seems to be a good decision to get their life together, it just goes horribly wrong. Um, mm. And so what ended up happening is that I believe the book went out of print and okay then there was a, a highly truncated version that was released. It was maybe eight, 800 pages. And so that, you know, isn't a great version of the book either. And I think just a few years ago, James Jones's daughter did a kind of restoration of the text. And so the version that's available now, which I read is 1200, is 1200 pages, I believe, but it, there's this great prologue where she talks about how she worked with an editor to, 
um, restore material, but not restore all of it. And so like she shows you an original passage Interesting. Um, that is, you know, maybe 2000 words. And then she shows you the 1200 word version that is in the book now. And she shows how they basically like removed excess words. Mm. Boy, that would be fascinating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what you were pointing out too, with um, you mentioned how despairing it is and how just when you think people are going to get their life back together, um, then something happens or it's more despairing. It kind of, because we're used to that, especially with war movies, like, you know, as soon as they start talking about their sweetheart back home or, you know, the job or going to go help the parents on the farm, or as soon as they endear the character to us, we're like, oh no, this guy is a goner. And so when I was watching the young lions through the whole thing, I kept thinking that's what they were doing with Noah. Mm -hmm. And so because at the end, they didn't pay off on that, um, I was wondering with um, this one, did you see any foreshadowing or do you think they did a good job of deciding who lives and dies and what they put into the film at all compared to the novel with, um, we should say at the end of Some Came Running, it's actually Shirley MacLaine's character who dies uh, in the film. In the book, yes, it is the Frank Sinatra character that goes. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that the book, it, the movie is a very good adaptation of the book, but okay. it leaves so much out. Um, yeah, for instance, it has to. Yeah. So, for instance, in the book, by the time the, the denouement occurs and mm -hmm. the Frank Sinatra character is killed, um, he and Shirley MacLaine have been married for quite a long time. Oh, um, wow. And so okay. they've had like they've had a whole relationship and he's sort of found a new career. And, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's absolutely worth reading. I mean, it really is a very, I want to read it now. Yeah. experience and, and there's so much in it. I mean, even just the title, some came running, I think it works for the movie because it feels like it's about the things we run to for relief and mm -hmm. for escape. The urgency. But, but the, book begins with this prologue where he's in combat and oh, wow. there's this image of of all these men running at him who are trying to kill him yeah and so it's about wow. it becomes it's the book is definitely also about that this the same idea of some came running that I just said applies to the movie but it's also about like feeling like you have to defend yourself against death and then understanding that you were you know responsible for the death of other people as well and feeling this complicated feeling of guilt and relief and wondering if you enjoyed the killing that you committed and um so it's it's really there's really a lot going on there yeah um but i uh you know i i talk about this in the in the podcast episode that i have about this film but um I really think that the only way that you could deliver this material and deliver as much of it that is as sort of emotionally thorny and um, really a, kind of against the production code in terms of what you're depicting in terms of adult behavior with alcohol and sex and mm -hmm. adultery, um, the only way you could really get away with that in a Hollywood movie, even as late as the 1950s, I think was by holding out the possibility of redemption at the end. Um, and True. You know, the the book 
doesn't let you enjoy the romance between the Frank Sinatra character and the school teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's much more convoluted than is depicted in the movie. The okay. movie does have this sort of moment where they at least have a big kiss. Okay. Um, and so I think that that is made more conventional because that's what a movie needs. The movie A movie needs yes. something to hold on to in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the book, it's just this psychosexual drama where she is kind of holding out on him for reasons that she does not specify to him, but we know as a reader, and then he interprets it as something else. And you know, it's, it's just, it becomes, it's a really interesting analysis of masculinity in the book. Mm. And in the movie, I think it's a little bit more legitimately romantic. But one of the reasons why I wanted to read the book was because after the last time I watched the movie was over the summer and I watched it with some friends and we got into a little bit of an argument as to what is actually happening at the end of the movie when the school teacher rejects him okay. um, or why is she doing it? And is there a possibility that when they see each other at the funeral at the end that they could get back together? And so I wanted to to see if I could try to understand what the original intention was. And then, you know, as I said, I think the relationship is is really kind of different in the book. And so... I don't know that um, I don't know that the filmmakers were trying to even capture the original intention with that part of the story, but I think that they do, on the whole, do a really good job of capturing the feeling of the novel and some of these ideas about the just sort of American state of mind in the 1950s. Wow, that sounds really, really good. I'm gonna have to <laughs> check that book out now. Well, we should probably move on to the other one unless, well, I guess we didn't really cover Dean's role too much. It is a smaller role, but I think it's an important one. Yeah. I mean, I could talk just a little bit about how, um, so Dean Martin plays this gambler who kind of sets up housekeeping with Frank Sinatra. um, Yes. And they're, you know, these two single men who live together and have kind of a party house um, where they just drink a lot and are hanging out with different women. And that's, accurate to the book, actually, um, very much. But the character (laughs) in both the book and the movie, but in the movie, I think that the casting of Dean Martin is really important because he ends up saying kind of what the audience is thinking when it comes to this relationship between Shirley MacLaine and Frank Sinatra, where he says, you know, you can't marry her. She's a pig. (laughs) Um, and it's a horrible thing to say. And even as you're watching it, you're like, like, I wish he hadn't said that out loud, but it is tapping into what the movie wants you to feel about that relationship, which is that, you know, it, whatever's going on with him and this other woman, the answer is not to Mm -hmm. um, try to save this pathetic woman who loves him by marrying her when he doesn't love her. Yes. Um, and so there's just something really I don't know that many other performers of this time can get away with the way that Dean Martin talks about Shirley MacLaine in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he's able to get away with it because he has so much charisma and because his character up to this point has been somebody where um, even if he's kind of a low life, yeah. it feels like he's at least like leading Frank Sinatra and the movie into exciting places. Very true. And he's kind of talking around what is really going on, something that uh, Howard Hawks liked to put in his films, for sure. Yes. Uh, Well, released in 1959, our final film today is one of 
my favorite Westerns, Rio Bravo from director Howard Hawks, which although based upon the story Rio Bravo by B.H. McCampbell, who was uh, Barbara Hawks McCampbell, which is uh, Howard's daughter and adapted or written by Jules Furthman and Lee Brackett was essentially conceived by Hawks as sort of a right-wing response picture to the fiercely independent, allegorically-minded, one-against-the-world classic High Noon, which he loathed. (laughs) And uh, while I love both of those films, as well as Alan Juan's sort of even more liberal 1954 B-picture in this mode, Silver Load, as well, Rio Bravo is easily the one I watch the most. It's the most fun. And is it any wonder you've got John Wayne, Walter Brennan, Dean Martin in essentially for Montgomery Clift to turn the film down post-car accident. You also have Angie Dickinson, Ricky Nelson, and Ward Bond as well. The setup is simple. Wayne's Texas sheriff has arrested a wealthy, powerful rancher's brother for murder and needs to hold him in that cell until the cavalry in the form of the U.S. Marshal can arrive. All he's got with him in classic Wayne form of setting him up as far more macho by giving him quote unquote weaker sidekicks are a drunk ex-deputy Dean Martin, an old disabled deputy, aka Walter Brennan Stumpy, and a young gunslinger in Ricky Nelson's Colorado. It's a great long hangout movie about friendships and loyalty and viewers have as much fun as the cast looks like they had making it. So is your take on Rio Bravo? I, this is not one of my favorite movies, I have to be honest. Um, <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's. Uh, I think the things that I like about Westerns are um, not present in this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it's kind of too much of a hangout movie for me. It's a it little age yeah. bound. Um, and it ends up feeling kind of redundant to me, but. What I do really like about it is the relationship between John Wayne and Dean Martin's character yes. and how it um, is sort of a, you know, I think people have read it as being homoerotic or sort of a metaphor for for male romantic relationships. But I, I also think it works without that read and mm-hmm. as, a, as a film about, you know, how um, how two friends of, of any gender with any kind of relationship can can sort of complete one another. Um, and, um, I think it's of these movies that we're talking about today and maybe of all the movies of this era in Dean Martin's career, I think this performance is the most naturalistic. Yes. The one that really suggests that he could have done things that were much more challenging than what he did end up doing. Mm-hmm. And it's the one where he seems to be like the least coasting on his charisma. Yes. Yeah. He puts in the work here for sure. I agree with you. It's definitely a hangout movie and it is, I think it's like two and a half hours. They definitely could have trimmed they hang that. out for a while. <laughs> yes. They hang out for quite a while. It's um, character over plot. And I know at the time that was by design, Hawks was saying like, you know, I think audiences have had enough of plot. I love the poetic Westerns and I also love the fun ones. And so I get a kick out of this one. But it's interesting also the read you were mentioning, the homoerotic read, the fact that they call the Dean Martin character dude, for example, you know, that originally meant like more of a dandy. I don't think they were going for that in the movie, but 
it works. They always kind of did that to John Wayne. They gave him a boy or um, in this one, of course, it's uh, they use the word cripple. Um, I prefer as a disabled person, disabled. Uh, and there's another joke as um, stuff starts happening and uh, you know that Ward Bond um, and just all the villains are going to come for uh, the guy in the cell you know, who's coming next. And I think it's Ricky Nelson uh, suggests that maybe the next person to back him up is going to be Angie Dickinson. So that's mm -hmm. just a lot of fun as well. But yeah, I also get a kick out of the fact that this did start that new cycle of Westerns coming around in the early 60s. It was made in the era of television. So the beginning kind of works like the opening of a show from the era, um, which opened with like a teaser there's no dialogue. They kind of set up that exactly what you were saying you like about it, the friendship of these guys in this nonverbal way. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. It's different for Hawks. It has some of his priceless dialogue. He is repeating himself already at this point, but he kind of always was even back in the thirties. So yeah, it's, it's a fun one, but I can see why if you like the classical Westerns, this would not be um, someone's favorite. Yeah. But I, I mean, it is, as I said, I think so important in the context of what Dean Martin was doing at this point and even later, because like the movies that he enjoyed making the most were Westerns. Um, oh, true. Yes. So he, he's in a couple of great ones. I mean, he's in the sons of Katie elder. Um, and he's in a movie that I like a lot called five card stud, which it's sort of him versus Robert Mitchum, which is a really interesting pairing. I need to see that one. It's yeah, it's it's readily available. It's oh cool. Um, it's uh yeah, Dean Martin is the good guy and Robert Mitchum's the bad guy. <laughs> and there's one I haven't watched yet, which I think is a Civil War Western. Um okay. where, where it's him and Rock Hudson. Ooh. I want to say it's called Showdown, but ah. it's yeah, it's on my list of like the last few movies to catch up with as I finish this project. Oh, sounds good. Well, I know that was pretty much all the ones that we had time for. You did mention some really good ones or intriguing titles like Bells Are Ringing, which is so fun, uh, The Dramatic Career, and for this topic, of course, Ocean's Eleven. But are there any other Dean Martin movies, maybe even not from this period, um, that you would like to recommend people check out? Yeah, I uh, I know it's controversial, um, but I'm I find that Billy Wilder's "Kiss Me Stupid" oh, kiss me is stupid. Really fascinating. Yes. Um, so I, you know, I think it's that's going to be a really interesting one to talk about with people when I I do the episode on that because it's um, I've already kind of gotten on social media today a little bit of of knee jerk reaction against it. But okay. I watched it last week, so I, it's you know I'm Very not fresh. I'm not working off of some kind of nostalgic point of view, <laughs> um, and I think it's I think it's really good and and really there's a lot to say about it. So oh, I can't wait to hear that episode. Well, I want to thank you so much for doing this, Karina. It was a real honor and a pleasure. You're such an inspiring champion for classic movies. And also just uh, film as part of American and world history. So this was a real incredible treat. Thank you. Thank you so much. I had a great time. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research, equipment, film rentals, 
RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. <laughs>